This is hell. Live from the United States, where our obsession with individualism is a sucker play made by the rich to fake the public into thinking they have rights when those same rights are actually being stolen from us. Yes, individualism is a con put on by the wealthy and powerful who benefit from it most while disempowering poor saps like us because this is hell. And that was one of the many things discussed during the best of 2023 interview we are sharing on today's show, a conversation that actually gave us hope. I know, go figure. We've been doing a show called This Is Hell for nearly 30 years and somehow we finally found actual hope. Not that it's the first time. We have had conversations filled with hope. Hopes of protesters and activists and organizers that appear to have been dashed by the violent forces of the status quo. A status quo that would rather cause suffering, violence, and death than give up their legal right to private islands, charter jets, mammoth yachts, or tumble the walls that protect them from the masses they abuse for profit. All of which creates huge contributions to humanity-threatening climate change. Nonetheless, these same activists who have given us hope have all left behind a lingering legacy that has been growing for longer than we've been on air. From the globally influential Zapatista movement that Western media does everything to ignore, dismiss, and even censor, to the anti-globalization movement, to the anti-war movements, to Occupy, to the growth in climate change activism, to the movement for black lives and the expanding fight for LGBTQIA rights. While it is easy to lose hope, a big part of the reason it is easy is because the establishment corporate press does not want you to know about those who are organizing against the corporate establishment that pays their salaries. The kind of organizing that can actually give us here on This Is Hell hope and every so often we are again reminded that there is hope that the media would rather not publicize or recognize or note in any way which is what happened back in september when we spoke with truthouts kelly hayes on the boston review essay she co-wrote with past guest mariam kaba how much discomfort is the whole world worth movement building requires a culture of listening not mastery of the right language Thanks to Hugh and Braden for suggesting we play our conversation with Kelly. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Chris Coolfound. Uh, Chris, the last time I saw you was at the annual This Is Hell holiday office party back on Winter Solstice Eve, which was fantastic this year. A lot of listeners came out. It was really a lot of fun downstairs at Carrie's Lounge on Winter Solstice Eve. Uh, so uh, you should put it in your calendar for next year already. Uh, uh, Carrie's Lounge on Winter Solstice Eve, Eve, Eve on Wednesday, December 18th, 2024. We will be holding again the annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. So Chris, Will went to Wisconsin to visit family. Rebecca went to Colorado to do the same. I went to Michigan. You are a lifelong Chicagoan. So did you go anywhere over the last couple of weeks? No, I'm really stuck to Chicago, and New Year's Eve actually happens in my birthday, or as I like, I was like, as, as I like, as I like to say, the 25th anniversary of my 21st birthday. Oh, really? <laughs> Very yeah. nice. So we went marching for uh, ceasefire in Gaza downtown on my birthday, 
and that was a blast. And no kidding. Yeah, then I, we went out to, me and my girlfriend and a close friend of ours went, uh, went out to dinner to celebrate, yeah, my B-Day. And I usually don't eat meat, except for fish sometimes. Yeah. But uh, I decided to have a Euro lamb burger at this place called Murphy's downtown. Yeah. And um, I love calamari. That's just a weakness for mine. So, yeah, so that's how we had my birthday ceasefire. How was the lamb burger? Oh, that was, that was, that was, I mean, a little of a price because it's downtown, of course, sure. but it was like 21 bucks or something, but it was, it was the bomb. Ugh. It was the bomb. That yes. does sound great. I had a brisket burger one time just made of burnt ends from brisket. It was outstanding. So yeah, that sounds good. Uh, so big crowd on New Year's Eve for a protest? Yes. A very big, actually. It was, quite, it was, it was pretty big. Yeah. No, but nobody stayed home. I mean, like, if at least they felt that way. Did, <laughs> so. did, did it surprise you how big the crowd was? Um, yes and no. I mean, like, in one way, if, like, the, 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 the Travis in Gaza wasn't happening, I'd be surprised. Uh, with how the world's been reacting, especially with uh, new, uh, with Israel being hit, being hit from Lebanon yeah. with, uh, on New Year's Eve, then Israel hitting Beirut, things amping up. Um, that part of me is not surprised because this is, be I mean, travesties in Israel and Gaza have always been happening, but it's escalating now where, like, the world's watching and uh, where the hegemony of world uh, world powers play is quite fascinating so i don't know yeah that sounds like a great new year's eve though uh, my new year's eve was just sitting here and drinking with somebody and watching somebody try to pick up my girlfriend which was great yesterday i mentioned how my unspouse and i drove all over god's little mitten michigan's lower peninsula going from one family member's home to another to another to another to another what I didn't mention is we also saw a relative who was in the hospital due to a medical emergency. They suffered a week earlier, so we celebrated the holiday with them in the rehabilitation center where they were recovering. I also did not mention that I went to a legal, independent Michigan recreational marijuana dispensary for the very first time. I've been to a couple of dispensaries in Michigan, uh, but I have not been to an independent Michigan recreational marijuana dispensary, one that grows their own. It's in a small town, make that officially a small village of around 1,500 people, a place surrounded by massive farms that raise livestock, both chicken and beef, as well as squash, pumpkins, blueberries, wheat, cut flowers, and a lot more. And way out of town, what little town there is, outside the very tiny business district and residential areas, with nothing in sight, but you know thriving farms are in operation. In a group of warehouses, an independent dispensary with tens of thousands of feet, square feet of indoor grow space, they sell their own exceptionally grown weed for at the very most a hundred bucks an ounce. Sold to customers in a warm and friendly environment, unlike most dispos here in Illinois, which are as sterile and welcoming as a welfare or social security office. While here in Illinois, legal weed is sold in soulless facilities, bland stores dominated by corporations which demand excessively high prices without fulfilling the legal weed's promised benefits going to those who suffered the most from the war on drugs, and instead enriching the already wealthy who likely made coin from the deadly war on drugs as well. In Michigan, weed's good, cheap, easy to find, and while Michigan's laws and policies are also heavily influenced by many of the same forces that have ruined weed here in Illinois, there is still room within their laws, still room left for the independent farms, all due to far fewer corporate and big money friendly rules and regulations. With apologies for being repetitive, if you want a good marijuana policy that actually helps people who suffered from the immoral, violent, 
and deadly war on drugs, people like me, do not legalize it. Decriminalize it and apply the same rules for growing weed in your basement that suburbanites have for brewing beer in theirs. Rules that do not require a license to brew and the few laws that do apply are rarely, if ever, in Forced. Without going into great detail, that would mean no license required to grow weed, just like no license is required to brew beer. You do not sell, you don't, you can't sell it, you're not allowed to sell it, but you are allowed to produce whatever your product is, beer, weed, for competitions, and you can trade it at official club meetings among producers. So, in other words, home brewing's rules are so loose, they're easy to circumvent, as they should be, with decriminalized weed. Chris, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience. This week's question from hell is what will you do after the fuel runs out? What will you do after the fuel runs out? We will share your question from hell answers as posted at our Facebook page and at the Facebook group page. Welcome to the hell hole following the interview that we're going to be playing with Kelly Hayes, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support to see all of our stuff. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell, as always, at our Facebook page, at our Facebook group page. Welcome to the Hell Hole. You can tweet it at us on X at This Is Hell Radio. You can post it on our Patreon page if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can post it in our Discord community, or you can just email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner also coming up uh, we're going to have uh, jeff dorchin's favorite moment of truth from 2023 chris which moment of truth has jeff selected as his favorite of 2023 during this week's moment we will be replaying Jeff's favorite moment of 2023 from February 15th of last year titled Faceless People from Indiana. <laughs> they are. As somebody who's been born and raised in Chicago, the people of Indiana are faceless, aren't they? <laughs> it sounds right about spout on. So This Is Hell has been named a finalist in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Reader's Poll as Chicago's Best Podcast. Also, me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, and podcast host Chuck Mertz, has been nominated as a finalist in the same poll as Best Radio DJ. So thanks to everyone who's nominated us. We truly appreciate it. So now you can vote for This Is Hell as Best Podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, as Best Radio DJ under the City Life category at chicagoreader.com slash best. Also, congratulations to Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from us, that has shown so much support for This Is Hell over the years, hosting our weekly office hours, meet and greets that are really drinking things, and our annual summer and anniversary party and art show as well as our yearly holiday office party you can now vote for carrie's lounge c-a-r-y apostrophe s as best dive bar and it is best neighborhood bar and as someone from the neighborhood i have met many of my neighbors here and best beer garden and if you want to know why it is chicago's best beer garden just drop by during office hours uh, which are happening every Wednesday throughout January, beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. So if you want to really get under the skin of corporate media and their pat, uh, paid minions, vote for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell as Best Podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, as Best Radio DJ under the City Life category at chicagoreader.com slash best. 
And if you want to show your appreciation for all of Carrie's Lounge support for This Is Hell, vote for Carrie's as best neighborhood bar, best dive bar, and best beer garden at the same place. Coming up, believe it or not, in 2023 here on This Is Hell, we had hope. Go figure. Chris, share some of your answers to the question from hell. And uh, Chris will tell us who is our uh, the next interview. What is the next interview we will be featuring on tomorrow's edition of the best of 2023? You gotta have hope because this is hell. This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell hell if we want to do more than only manufacture dissent if we want to start a movement to actually confront the systems of violence and cruelty that are destroying the planet and the people on it we must work together including with people frankly that we don't like here to help us understand why that is and what it means for movement making, we are very happy to have on our show award-winning Menominee organizer and writer Kelly Hayes, who co-wrote the Boston Review essay, How Much Discomfort Is the Whole World Worth? She co-authored this essay with past guest Miriam Kaba, and not only is it featured in the new Boston Review issue on Solidarity, but it's also in their uh, book that they share that they are co-authors of let this radicalize you organizing and the revolution of reciprocal care welcome to this is hell kelly thank you so much for having me oh my god so thank you so much you know often people have been telling me to get you on the show it's driving me crazy (laughs) so i'm so glad that i finally got you on the show and it's not just like uh listeners who send me stuff i'll be talking to a friend they're like do you know kelly hayes Like, it it drives me crazy, so I'm glad this is finally happening. You start by writing, organizing is not a process of ideological matchmaking. Most people's politics will not mirror our own. And even people who identify with us strongly on some points will often differ strongly on others. So this made me think of how on the right, beginning in the 1990s, rhinos or Republicans in name only were attacked for not adhering to and embracing every right wing position for not aligning exactly with the party platformer whose loyalty to the party uh, was questioned. Dinos, or Democrats in name only, was a term that actually began much earlier in like 1908, which surprised me. How can organizing together still allow for differing opinions? Why don't movements, why don't organizers need to demand loyalty and complete alignment with a movement's positions? Well, for starters, I would just say that that it doesn't work. <laughs> it's not how people actually function. And I think that a lot of us enter into movement spaces, whether we know it or not, um, looking for belonging. And that, you know, we don't necessarily recognize that as part of what's driving us into a space because we have other very real motivations, you know, like we want to stop a war or we want to end police violence. And all of that feels very front and center. But there is this underlying thing happening inside of us because we are so alienated under capitalism and under the individualist culture we're living in that we are looking to belong. And I think being in spaces where there is more of a recognition that we should treat each other with respect, that there is more of a recognition that the societal standards about the way our identities are recognized, about the way that our oppressions are or are not recognized, um, 
something about that makes us more demanding. It, it, it it makes us realize that we do get to ask for more, you know, and sometimes that asking for more can become sort of moralizing. Um, it can become sort of a social demand that we place upon everyone around us an expectation for affinity um, as opposed to figuring out who we can work with even if it's hard, even if they're challenging us, even if they're saying things that we don't really like. Um, figuring out where, where to draw the line, when to push back, when to leave someone room to grow, uh, when to be constructive about how we try to explain something instead of going on the defensive. Um, these aren't skills we're coming to the table with. You know, and a lot of the skills we are coming to the table with are pretty dysfunctional, right? Because the things we've had to do to navigate our lives and defend ourselves are not always great. You know, we, we have had to make the best of the skills that we've had to deploy to get by in a world that's really unfair to us. And so we're coming into these spaces and a lot of times we've got trauma responses ricocheting around the room and we're not always starting from a place of figuring out how to listen even when it's hard, and how to negotiate what we need from each other in order to fight for the cause versus what we want from each other in terms of the kind of belonging and recognition that we really do deserve, but that isn't going to come from everyone and that isn't necessarily going to come easily even when we ultimately arrive there. And we come from, as you're pointing out, this world of individualism, this world of neoliberalism, which uh, makes the individual the most important thing in the world. Do you, if I would assume, from what your response was, that you believe that that individualism, that constant focus on individualism, undermines our ability to form movements, to collaborate. But does it also... Uh, that the lack, does that also lead to a lack of belonging? Does that also lead to a desire for movement building? Can individualism, neoliberal individualism, actually fuel our desire to belong and collaborate? I mean, I think we're starving for connection and belonging because of the way this society is structured. I mean, if we look at, and I think the pandemic put this in stark relief, you know, when we were looking, we were also isolated in those early days of you can't go to restaurants, you can't go to bars. Um, so many things were shuttered. And then, you know, when we stopped to think about where do we get to gather and commune with people that most of those options had become commercial in most of our lives. And I think that the way that these things are broken down um, so that we are so isolated from one another that yes, we absolutely have this sort of desperate drive in many cases, whether we recognize it in ourselves or not, or connection, but that we don't have the tools, we don't have the practice in being right in right relationship with one another to forge those bonds necessarily in a healthy way when the environment is challenging. You know, I think a lot of people look at organizing and in the beginning, they kind of think it's the work of sort of seeking out other people who get it, of assembling people with whom um, we can find easy agreement. And while absolutely um, giving people who are already where we're at 
who want to help things to do <laughs> is a very important part of the work. Um, for some people, it seems like it stops there. It's like sending out search parties for the people who already have perfected politics or that small portion of people who are willing to take instruction on politics, because most people, you're not going to approach them and say, your politics are bad, take these instead. Although that may happen every once in a while. Some people might be like, oh, I didn't know, thank you, and then do the thing differently. But that's not how most people operate. It's not how most people learn. And so a lot of us, um, we're just not skilled up in building the kind of relationships that we need with other human beings in order to be constructive together. So you mentioned affinity earlier and uh, in this in this idea of, that you were talking about, about belonging. I have seen people show their desire for belonging. I have seen people who are, you know, might have libertarian or even neoliberal leanings, uh, you know, still strive to have that belonging. But it comes in the form of, uh, this is just a stupid example, being a Cubs fan, you know? Uh, so uh, what is the difference between affinity and that kind of belonging and the kind of belonging that we need and the tools that we use to be part of a movement? Well, I mean, I think affinity is definitely has its place within movements, right? I mean, we all we've all heard the term affinity group, you know, the people with whom we can most easily find common ground, people who share our values, um, folks that we feel really comfortable turning to in a crisis because we know we're going to be somewhere near the same page. I, I think we all need that. Um, I certainly have that kind of space within my community. And I tend to think about that as a sanctuary personally. Um, and we all need sanctuary. Uh, you know, the world is in crisis. We're living through an apocalypse. We absolutely need that in our lives. We're not wrong for looking for it. And also struggles are not sanctuaries. The larger movements that we're building within, I, we simply can't move through them with the same expectations that we have in those most comfortable spaces that we're able to sort of cultivate for ourselves. And so to me, it's it's about being able to make that distinction. There are spaces where my expectations of people are different. Um, in my own collective, for example, you know, uh, we have very tight-knit relationships. We have very similar values. And if something upsetting happens to me and I go and I recount it to these folks, I'm going to get a lot of support and a lot of similar reactions. And there aren't really going to be anyone saying, I don't understand why that was upsetting, unless for some reason I'm being reactive and someone's helping to set me straight. But out in like a larger group of folks, I might need to understand that I might walk into a room and recount something that someone said to me and there might be people there that don't understand why that was messed up or don't understand why I'm upset about it and I might might either need to just move past that or explain in a, in a constructive way that's not necessarily shutting them down or shutting down the relationship why this was upsetting to me why this is a hard thing um I don't think like our feelings are valid but we can't always expect our feelings to translate into um, other people's worldviews in ways that they can immediately understand. And I think that we, um, we lose our way sometimes in the expectation of affinity in places where what we need most is solidarity. What we need most is knowing that when my body is on the line, you're going to have my back. 
when it's us against, you know, the forces that oppress us, we are going to line up together and lock arms or whatever it is. You know, it's our expectations of each other need to make sense and they need to be specific to what is realistic for the group of people that we're dealing with. So movement building, it would seem, would be un- it's one of the issue or obstacles it would have is the process of, you know, just preaching to the choir. So is movement building, is this kind of solidarity, uh, are these kind of struggles safe spaces? I don't really believe that safe spaces exist. Um, We can try to make spaces safer, and I think that's a, a worthy goal. But we are going to be uncomfortable. And if we're comfortable all the time, then we definitely aren't confronting the challenges that we need to confront in order to do this work. I find that fascinating. Is that conflict and discomfort necessary? Should it be intentionally pursued, or is it something that spontaneously happens? Is a tense, contentious environment necessarily good or bad for movement building? I don't think anyone has to pursue it. I, I think it's quite inevitable. I think if we, <laughs> like, I think if we are expanding our numbers and building across communities in the ways that we need to, like we're going to encounter those tense moments. They're simply going to happen, and we need to skill build our way through, um, sort of adjusting and and learning together, and in figuring out what the priority is in a given moment. You also point out that the forces that oppress us may uh, compete and make war with one another. But when it comes to maintaining the order of capitalism and the hierarchy of white supremacy, uh, they collaborate and work together based on their death-making and eliminationist shared interests. Oppressed people, on the other hand, often demand ideological alignment or even affinity when seeking to interrupt or upend structural violence. This tendency lends an advantage to the powerful that is not easily overcome. To you, what explains the seemingly inherent collaboration of the powerful while the oppressed insist on agreement and actually liking each other? Well, I think part of that has to do with the fact that systems maintain themselves. It's the primary function of any system to maintain itself so that ultimately when it comes down to whether or not they disagree with each other or dislike one another, people with the most power are always going to conspire to keep us in our place, to maintain their authority, to maintain their control. And they are going to put whatever difference they have to aside in order to keep that hierarchy in place. So is collaboration to enforce the status quo easier and not as big of an obstacle as what the oppressed have to go through because they have to think of a new system that uh, brings about structural change? I would definitely say it comes easier to them because their priorities get very simple very quickly when the system is truly threatened in some way. Whereas our work is much more of a construction project, right? And so people are out here trying to agree on what the blueprints look like or out here trying to building without blueprints. And (laughs) there are so many different visions for what an alternative to the system could look like and so many different ideas about what is an acceptable way to kind of create formations around getting there that yes, absolutely, our our struggle is a much more difficult one and, and a much more creative one. And therefore, yes, it, we, we are faced with far greater challenges in that regard. So is power the outcome of collaboration? And conversely, is 
powerlessness, even oppression, the result of the oppressed not collaborating? Well, I wouldn't say it's as simple as um, powerlessness is is the result of, of not collaborating. There, We have so many forces working against us, um, so many. But I would say that absolutely we cannot build power if we are unable to collaborate. And, you know, I'm thinking about um, a book uh, Chris Begley wrote um, called The Next Apocalypse. And there's a chapter in that book called Who Survives and Why? And Chris has studied um, like previous apocalypses, basically the collapse of different civilizations, you know, as an archaeologist. He's also um, a survivalist instructor. And so he has a particular perspective on these things. And so in this chapter where he talks about who survives an apocalypse and why, um, it was not what I was expecting at all. Um, I'm I'm a Menominee uh, person, but I didn't grow up on the reservation. My father was removed along with many other children in 1950. And so I grew up in an urban environment. And ever since I realized that, you know, things are taking the turn that they are, the world is in great peril. It's troubled me a lot that I have a city Indian survival skills. <laughs> you know, I love air conditioning. I don't know how to, well, I didn't know until the past year or so how to make a fire. And um, Chris talks about in that chapter that, yes, I know you're all thinking you need these survivalist skills. And yeah, I'll talk about that. And the thing is, these, this stuff isn't hard. It's not hard to learn how to do a lot of these things that you need to do in a crisis. And they're also not the first determinants of who survives in a major um, collapse situation. The first determinant of who survives is discernment. Who can tell good information from bad information? Who can tell good leadership from bad leadership? And the second is our ability to collaborate across difference because we literally cannot survive without working collaboratively in a crisis. And so if you think about, you know, in a major moment of collapse, let's say, you know, the power grid goes down, suddenly we have trouble getting things like food, um, our transit is disrupted, we need to be able to work with the people around us. And the people around us are usually not going to be in perfect ideological alignment with us. They may say things that offend us. They may have some bad ideas about things. So how do we negotiate that? How do we feel our way through that while holding each other in our humanity? That these are actually some of the most important survival skills that, that we have. And of course, that also translates to organizing. And of course, that also translates to our ability to build power in, in any circumstance, because we literally can't survive without these skills. That's fascinating. And I'm going to go get The Next Apocalypse by Chris Beckley immediately. <laughs> that sounds incredible. So you write, uh, put simply, we need more people. What do we mean by this? We are not talking about launching search parties to find an undiscovered army of people with already perfected politics with whom we will easily and naturally align. So what are the basics that we need to, that need to be uh, agreed upon, that we need to rally around? What are those basics? Well, I think in any space, you know, we need sort of an understanding of how we're going to treat each other. You know, I think community agreements are important. I think baseline expectations are important. And I think we need to be able to um, push back in constructive ways uh, when necessary, you know, in order to sort of maintain our self-respect, for starters, um, and also to 
to make people aware of boundaries, you know, because boundaries are important and we do get to have them. Um, I, in the book, I talk about um, an incident that happened with a group that my collective worked with. Uh, we're kind of a specialized crew and for a number of years, a lot of what we did was working with folks who wanted to do direct actions that their group maybe needed some training for, whether that was a direct action 101 to do something kind of basic as safely as possible and creatively as possible, like maybe a sit-in or a march without a permit, or something much more elaborate, like a blockade that maybe involves equipment that the group doesn't know how to build and doesn't know how to deploy safely. So we would do anything from spending, you know, four hours with the group training to spending like all of our so-called spare time for weeks on end with the group training and rehearsing and rehearsing for them to deploy and do an action that is ultimately pretty dangerous. And there was one incident we talk about in the book where we were going into this space and it was a space filled with really kind of the kind of people I grew up with. Um, a lot of brown folks, a lot of folks with some varying levels of misogyny sort of happening. And as a crew of all women and trans folk, um, we knew that there might be some attitudes we might bump up against, particularly since we're standing in front of this group explaining things like, this is how we're gonna build this equipment that you're going to use. These are the tools we'll use. These are the tools the police will use to dismantle it. This is what that's going to be like. And we were kind of doing this initial introductory piece uh, for them to get a feel for us, for us to get a feel for them, to kind of feel out, is this collaboration going to work? Is this the best fit? And we really wanted this. We really believed in what this group was doing and we really wanted to work with them on supporting this action. And at the, at the end of this um, very exhaustive sort of presentation that we gave, I asked if there were any questions and an older gentleman in the back of the room yelled out, yeah, where are the men? <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. And yeah, yeah. And I had a moment of pause, uh, as did my comrades beside me. And I, I could feel my own anger kind of welling up, and I could definitely feel theirs. And I knew that what we said next, you know, could kind of determine, like, the direction things took. And so I, I took a chance and I made a joke. I said, at home, making me dinner. <laughs> and a bunch of people in the room laughed, you know, it, it, it brought down the temperature. Um, and it also made a point, you know, um, without getting into it, without giving a speech about why that kind of misogyny is bad. It, it made the point that, no, we're not going to take that. You know, we we have expertise. We have things to offer. And, um, yeah, don't basically don't do that. And afterwards, you know, I debriefed with my team and we talked about it. I'm like, was that an okay way to handle that? Because, I mean, it's not exactly the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> we can be macho, too. But we all agreed, you know, it was it was a good enough way to handle an unacceptable moment because, it pushed back. It made the point that, hey, we're going to stick up for ourselves. Don't don't go there. And also, it didn't derail the solidarity that we were trying to forge with the people in that room who were ready to do it. And over the course of the, the weeks that we spent with these folks um, preparing for their action, 
I will say that some of the folks who had a skeptical attitude towards us, um, I really watched that melt away. And by the time we executed that action and those folks got out of jail, the level of mutual respect and admiration between our groups was so strong. And um, we wound up having this beautiful celebratory dinner together where our groups were toasting one another and celebrating one another. And, you know, we easily could have lost all of that, you know, if we had had what in some ways would have been a fair reaction to a moment of just ridiculous misogyny. And so I think to some degree, it's, it's about that kind of thing. It's about figuring out how to pivot in moments when we're dealing with things we shouldn't have to deal with, with things that simply shouldn't exist in the room, but are going to, because we are all wading through all these bad isms all the time. They are all over us. They are all over our communities. And I don't just want to extend my solidarity to people who are where I am in the path of trying to get some of that muck off. I want to help and and to be helped by people who are at varying stages of that process. And I want us to be there for each other in the pursuit of a livable world and fair housing and all the things that we deserve, whether or not we're in that moment of shared politics yet. But you also point out that we can build upon our expectations of such people and negotiate protocols around matters of respect. But the truth is, we will sometimes be uncomfortable or even offended. We will at times have to constructively critique people's behavior, simply allow them room to grow. There will be other times, of course, when we have to draw hard lines. But if we cannot organize beyond the bounds of our comfort zones, we will never build movements large enough to combat the forces that would destroy us. So does growing the size of the tent, if you will, necessarily diffuse the message of the movement's cause? If a stronger turnout is desired, must the the message make concessions and necessarily be, quote unquote, weakened to accommodate more opinions? I think that, I mean, it really varies. And it's the, the, my, my feeling is that we're going to be uncomfortable as the tent gets bigger. And so that does mean compromise. And it does mean dealing with people, yeah, that sometimes we're just not going to like. And and that bit about hard lines is important because hard lines do have to exist. Um, you know, if, that, if someone in that room, for example, instead of making that comment had used the N-word about one of my comrades, that would have been a different moment. That wouldn't have been a joke to resolve this. That would have been, excuse me, let me explain why you don't get to use that language. And, you know, we would have had a talk and it would have been a lot harder in tone than simply making a joke. I I do believe, again, you have to have community agreements. You have to have baseline expectations of how people treat each other that are not as flexible as as some things. And, you know, this sounds a little wishy-washy and unclear. One of the critiques that somebody made of the book uh, that I did appreciate was that they wished that there had been more specificity around how to deal with people who have regressive ideas around things like gender and race. And I wish I could write that book for them too. (laughs) Like that's, that's a whole other book. That's, and I honestly don't know that it can be written because I think it's all so subjective. I think that we don't all have the same stretch zone kind of as we talk about in terms of Um, you know, where we're able to negotiate beyond the realm of comfort or easy agreement. 
And I don't think those expectations should always be the same across identity. Um, I can't tell someone like, oh, when someone says this thing, you have to be willing to give a little. It, it's going to be different depending on the context, the situation, and the person that the demand is being placed upon. Um, what I do know is that we have to be willing to understand, for one thing, the difference between not being safe and not being comfortable. I think there's been some conflation around those ideas in recent years. Um, we're going to be uncomfortable sometimes and understanding that that's part of the process. Does that dilute the larger message? It, it may feel that way sometimes, right? But the fact is, if what I want is something as big as universal health care, there are going to be people in that tent who have other ideas that I don't like. I mean, and, and maybe this is... Um, like as a prison abolitionist, I may be more accustomed to this than some people, because if I only worked with other people who believed prisons would need to be abolished, I, I would have a very limited pool of co-strugglers. Um, the existence of prisons is, is offensive to me, and it's very clear to me in my politics that we need to build towards a world without them. A lot of people aren't there yet, and those weren't my politics for a really long time. But I also happen to believe that part of how we get that world is universal health care. I don't think that world exists without us extending what mutual care looks like in our society far beyond what we have today. So when there are people who are, have, have gotten that far in agreement with me, I need to figure out how to work with as many of those people as possible, even though sometimes some of them are going to have ideas about a whole lot of topics that are going to make me uneasy. I need to figure out as an organizer how to work with those folks. And by the way, that is also how I have seen prison abolition take hold in more and more people, which is that they have organized and worked alongside and thought alongside people who have my specific politics and over time, through the waging of struggle, come to share more and more of those views. I happen to believe that's where most transformation and people's politics actually takes place. It happens in the waging. But how much do people fear that kind of transformation or growth? Because, you know, it made me think about, you know, instability. People do not like instability. When your ideas of the world are challenged, that can be frightening to people. So how much is there a fear of transformation and growth that does become an obstacle to movement building? I think that we're all very attached to our ideas and we're all very attached to um, being right, you know, for one thing, but also being certain. I think many of us, if not most of us, are deeply uncomfortable with uncertainty. And um, I'm very interested in political psychology and I've gotten even more interested about it during the pandemic when people who share my values were behaving in ways that I didn't understand early on. I started reading um, John Jost's work, um, A Theory of System Justification, is a really great book. And he talks about how people need a sense of certainty. And he also talks about this in a book called Left and Right, and how um, it is very difficult for most people to engage with uncertainty. And so we kind of, it's why people default to the status quo. It's also why we sort of latch on to our own ideas about things and try to keep them fixed, because the idea of uncertainty is harder for most people to deal with than the inevitability of something bad is. 
it is easier for most people to latch on to an, assu an assumption that something bad is inevitable than to inhabit an uncertainty where maybe we can stop the bad thing and maybe we can't. So I think that our movements really have to engage with this. We have to engage with the fact that people are struggling around these notions of certainty and uncertainty, and they're struggling around notions of safety and belonging at all times. This is a constant grappling process that people are dealing with. And no, our movements cannot simply hand people, okay, here's your certainty. But I do think that we can help people engage with certainty and uncertainty in much more constructive ways, just as um, I can't hand someone safety but I can help foster in concert with other people environments where people know that we are all acting in defense of one another. I think many of us know what it's like to be in the streets at a protest, and we are most assuredly not safe in those moments. But we know that a vast number of other people are looking out for us and care about what happens to us and will try to help us if we fall. And that most of our days, most of our time moving through the world, we don't walk around with that feeling, which is one of the reasons I believe that movements have the potential to hand us those experiences where we're in the middle of a movement moment and we have that sense that we're exactly where we're supposed to be, exactly where when we're supposed to be there with the people that we're supposed to be with. That's what movements can give us at our best, at that sense of total engagement. And I think that that's how we begin to overcome some of these other struggles around the constant grappling for certainty, constant grappling for safety and belonging. These are complex things, and I think we have to think of them as part of the movement infrastructure and part of what we're building in ways that we're not used to because we're very task focused in movement work and, and with good reason we have a lot of work to do but we also have to think about the infrastructure that addresses these feelings and aaron goggins of the wild seed society addressed this really powerfully really powerfully in the last episode of movement memos kind of talking about what it can look like to try to build that infrastructure and try to build that sense of interdependence, right? That can help get around some of the feelings that we have about power over and power under that, you know, that it's easy to default to across the board because that's what capitalism and individualism foster in us. We are speaking with award-winning Menominee organizer and writer Kelly Hayes, who co-wrote the Boston Review essay, How Much Discomfort is the World Worth? Movement Building Requires a Culture of Listening, Not Mastery of the Right Language. The essay was co-authored by a past guest here on This Is Hell, Mariam Kaba, and is featured in the new Boston Review issue on Solidarity. It's also in their book that they co-authored, Let This Radicalize You, Organizing and the Rev Revolution of Reciprocal Care. Kelly is the co-host of Truthout's podcast, Movement Memos, and a contributing writer at Truthout. You can find out more about Movement Memos at Kelly's website, kellyhayes.org, and please support Kelly's work on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell you write this will not come easily the movements that we need what we need to do to challenge to make build movements because white supremacy and classism have forced many wedges between our communities is this classism one way is there a class war being waged by the wealthy against the poor by the powerful against the oppressed and not the other way around and do the oppressed need to simply co-opt 
that kind of classism that the powerful are employing against the oppressed? I mean, it's it's very clear to me that uh, class war is being waged very effectively and consistently, um, you know, by the ruling class. And yes, absolutely, we need to wage the class war from below um, much more effectively. And there are people who I believe are, are building those kind of bonds and waging that kind of struggle that that exists. Um, you know, we have tenant organizing is very powerful. I think unions are the obvious go to labor unions. But I, I also see this in a lot of different structure based organizing that goes on. Um, and also in some of the community, smaller community work that happens, um, you know, P.O. Box Collective is a great example in my area of a group of folks who have come together to foster a space that really supports a lot of different organizing that is assisting migrant folks, that is helping to feed folks who need assistance on that level and hoping, helping to support um, you know, folks who are organizing for trans liberation. I think that we need to be multifaceted in that way in our work. Um, you know, our struggles are united in ways that we don't always recognize, but our enemies are the same. They really are the same. And so absolutely we need more class unity. And we also need to recognize the complexity inherent in that and not default to class reductionism and not sort of discount the importance of the struggles that particular communities are dealing with in the context of just saying, you know, it's about class, which unfortunately some folks do. Um, understanding the class struggle means understanding how the ruling class um, uses things like gender identity, uses things like race in, or in, in order to animate its violence. When movements do arise and they get national establishment media press attention, like Occupy Wall Street did, the establishment corporate media will insist on a movement, A, providing a leader, B, a set of demands. They want to be provided with that new set of politics the movement is embracing to discourage messy journeys, as you call them. So, However, as organizers, activists, historians, and many other guests have pointed out on the show, a movement or even a revolution is, as you say, a messy journey. It does not come with instructions and a written down how-to step-by-step plan that is then thoroughly adhered to. Instead, the movement, like the people within it, will experience transformation as they grow. For organizers, is the mission not to impose a new set of politics, not to have all the answers, but to create an environment and a movement that allows for political transformation to grow? How uncertain is the organizer of the direction the work will take them? I think it's important to bring an analysis to the table but I think that no matter you know how many books we've read or how sharpened our analysis um, may be, I think it's deeply important to you know not to resort to sort of the banking model of trying to educate other people, of trying to deposit our ideas in their head. I think we need to take kind of a Frarian approach, you know, to learning alongside, thinking alongside other people getting their ideas about the concepts that we're tackling together. And yes, sharing the analysis that we have, but allowing people to sort of see what they think of it, to feel it out, to grow with it, to maybe affect our analysis and help shape shift the way that we view things. 
Um, the, the way I think now is so different, right, from the analysis that I had, you know, just 10 years ago. And I owe that to my co-strugglers. I owe that to the process of learning and thinking alongside and being willing to to move, you know, as people presented ideas that I was not familiar with or that I hadn't tried before or that maybe my old way of doing things had been holding me back from or maybe my fear of other people and the ways that they had hurt me or might hurt me again had been holding me back from trying or recognizing or giving a chance. I think that having an analysis is is deeply important, but we don't come into movement spaces to sort of inflict our analysis on other people or to project it onto the room and now everyone's saved, like we're bringing them to Christ or something. It's about learning and thinking alongside. And that's how we build relationships. People want to get to know and to fight alongside people who value their ideas, who take them seriously, not people who see them as canvases to paint ideas on or batteries to drain, but as people who want to, who people who hold them in their humanity and people who they can hold in their humanity as we sort of forge a journey together. And you point out that for organizer and scholar Ruth Wilson Gilmore, it was her time in Alcoholics Anonymous that helped her transform her practice of listening. You then quote her telling you and your co-author, Miriam Kaba, the main thing that I learned, especially in the first couple years that I was going to meetings, was the beauty of the rule against crosstalk. It was the best thing that ever happened to me that I couldn't say anything to anybody. I had to listen and I had to learn to listen. She had to learn to listen. What is it about our society that doesn't allow us, that becomes an obstacle to what she calls deep listening? Well, for one thing, I really respected what Ruthie said in that conversation about being a know-it-all and also um, wanting to know everything and how these things can sometimes be at odds because we're trying to prove what we know and also wanting to hear and understand at the same time. And I think Part of this goes back to how change happens in the waging. Um, You know, my father was also in Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, after he passed, um, a number of people, I, I can't count how many people came up to me at his memorial service and talked to me about how my father basically saved their lives by extending solidarity when they needed it. And um, during when he was alive, he would talk to me about what he got out of AA. Uh, he, he would never, of course, tell me these other people's stories, except for this one time when he mentioned that there was a trans woman in AA and in his fellowship and that it transformed his politics. And he knows me. Right. So he's it's, this isn't the first time he's heard some of these ideas. And, you know, it. Most people who talked to him about trans politics after that would have assumed that it was my influence uh, that he was, you know, sort of mouthing. But it was really the product of listening to this woman and trying to figure out what he could do to help her stay sober, because that was the collective goal. And that sort of shut up and listen practice that Ruthie was talking about and that shared purpose got him to tune in in a way that he never really had before to understanding what it was like to be this woman moving through the world. And he told me that, you know, in AA, a lot of us talk about all the harm we caused and how we can never drink again because we caused all this harm to all these people that we care about. He's like, and listening to this woman, I was aware that she had caused so much harm to herself because people like me weren't making space for her in the world. 
weren't recognizing her, weren't extending some warmth and some understanding and realizing how little that really is to ask if it could help save someone's life. It could help make the world a livable, joyful place for someone. And so I think to really hear each other and to really think about what would it mean to extend this person's solidarity, most of our society doesn't prepare people to do that. And I think that, you know, obviously there's a big difference between AA and, you know, going to a meeting about how do we get fair housing in our neighborhood. But I think there's a very instructive lesson there about what it means to listen to other people, really listen to their experience, no matter how much it differs from your own, and figure out what it means to extend solidarity to them, what it means to extend the assistance that you might have to offer to help make the shared goal something that they can realize so that they could thrive and that so we could all survive together. I miss my button. You write a group culture that helps participants build their listening skills is an important component of successful organizing. Political education can create opportunities for people to practice listening to one another without interruption and interacting meaningfully with what others have contributed. In organizing, are listening skills more important than speaking skills? And does one, in your experience, has one affected the other? I think that both are pretty important, but I think it's easier to learn something like facilitation or canvassing and probably easier to um, teach those skills than it is to teach people to listen. I think that, um, I think like Miriam said recently, something about how adults are so afraid of losing face all the time. And it's so important to understand this. And I think this is absolutely true. And I think so many of us have walked through life getting kicked around so many times by the system, by our bosses, by ever whoever was bullying us in whatever context, our guard is all the way up. And so we engage in conversations from this really defensive place of, you know, bracing ourselves for the next hit or thinking up our comeback before the other person is even done talking. And it is so much more difficult, in my opinion, to unlearn those practices than it is to learn how to express something. I think all of it is is deeply, deeply important and we need all of it. And also facilitation is an undervalued and undertaught skill. But listening, I would say, is even more undervalued. And there's definitely um, some misogyny embedded in that, right? Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard men in particular in movement spaces talk about how we don't have time to talk about their feelings or we're not going to sit around and talk about our feelings. And it's like, well, I understand that we don't want to derail everything we're doing for the sake of what um, Ali Wayne calls like emotional downloading in the middle of a meeting. But if we don't make some space, right, to engage with what people are feeling and why, we are going to not have trust. We are not going to have the kind of bonds of communication that we need, and we're not going to build anything that lasts. So we actually really do need to be able to hear each other and figure out how to engage constructively with what people are feeling. And uh, hat tip to Ali Wayne, by the way. <laughs> it's great <laughs> yes. to hear him referred to. Uh, so uh, one last question for you, Kelly. We have been speaking with organizer, writer, 
Kelly Hayes, who co-wrote with Miriam Kaba the Boston Review essay, How Much Discomfort is the Whole World Worth, which is featured in their collaborative book, Let This Radicalize You, Organizing in the Revolution of Reciprocal Care, as well as in the new Boston Review issue on Solidarity. Kelly is the host of the Truth Out podcast, Movement Memos. Find, find out more about Movement Memos at Kelly's website, kellyhayes.org. Follow her on Twitter, Twitter. Twitter at Ms. Kelly M. Hayes and definitely support Kelly's work on Patreon at patreon.com slash Kelly Hayes. I almost said this is hell. I won't do that again. One last question for you, <laughs> Kelly. Uh, and uh, our final question, as always, is the question from hell. The question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that platforms like Twitter have helped facilitate tremendous accomplishments in movement work. But they have also created an arena for political performance and critique that is often divorced from relationship building or strategic aims. For many people, social media is not an organizing tool, but a realm of political performance and spectatorship. Now, back during the Arab Spring, we were told that that would have never happened if it wasn't for you know, we got to praise Google for this. We have to praise all the social media platforms for this. This would have never happened if it wasn't for social media. So does social media reward performance and spectatorship to the point of becoming an obstacle to any collaboration or collective work? Does it further individualize us and make us even more alone despite being connected to everyone? Is social media, and it's a terrible binary, so I want to apologize, good or bad for movement building? Well, I think we need to start from a place of acknowledging that sort of the lauding of these platforms was always uh, misplaced, right? Um, These platforms weren't created to facilitate liberation. We should applaud the ways in which people have figured out how to exploit them towards those ends in various moments, um, which we have seen. And which I've experienced in my own work. Um, Miriam and I have gotten a lot of people out of cages that we never would have been able to if not for the fundraising capacity and reach that we found on Twitter to tell these stories. Um, you know, we have campaigns like Free Brisha that helped get Brisha Meadows out of jail as a young person when she might have spent the rest of her life in prison. There, there are countless examples, and we should applaud the organizing and the collaboration that made those things possible, the creativity. And we should also recognize that these these platforms were never created for that purpose. And that in fact, we have seen over time that when we do make gains, they figure out ways to claw back that progress. Um, if we think about the way that trending items used to be visible on the um, on the, like the page the main page of Twitter, so if you're scrolling through your feed, trending items used to be right there next to your feed, and that was how we got so many people informed about Brisha's case. We got free Brisha to trend nationally, and so suddenly all these people are asking, "Who's Brisha?" And then when they hear the story, they're like, oh my God, we have to get that child out of jail. Um, So what did they do? They changed it so that to see which spending, you actually have to go out of your way, right? And so that the topics that you see are actually now determined by an algorithm that is trying to direct your attention to, for whatever reason, the system thinks you should be looking at. Um, these, These aren't mechanisms of liberation. They're like anything else that is made for profit that we may be able to exploit it in some circumstances, and also the ends that it is 
facilitating by design are completely different and are at times going to work against us in very real ways, such as rewarding the performance of outrage above substance, you know, above what might necessarily be useful to us as people who are trying to solve problems or build relationships. And so I think that we need to recognize what is useful and, and take what we can and also recognize that this was never for us and that the strength of our movements is always going to be into entering spaces and strategizing to do the work that we can there without fetishizing these things that don't belong to us. Kelly, this has been such an enjoyable conversation. I only have 35 more questions for you, so we could, <laughs> we could be doing this for another couple of hours. So thank you so much for being on. The biggest mistake that anybody ever made was giving us your contact information. So we're going to be annoying <laughs> you for the rest of your life. I'm really looking forward to having you back on the show. Thank you so much. This has really been a brilliant conversation and a great follow-up, by the way, to our conversation on Monday with Sharice Morris. I ended that conversation, by the way, the question from hell I had for her was in, I get a weekly newspaper and from rural Northern Michigan, from a very Trump County, uh, that two thirds of a vote in 2016 and 2020 went to Trump. They would never say they engage in mutual aid, but certainly during the worst part of the pandemic, the early years of the pandemic, they were doing, you know, charitable drives, charitable food drives for each other, often through groups like Rotary Club or churches. And so I asked Sharice, uh, do you think these kinds of groups are vulnerable to the concept of having a different type of law enforcement, if you will, a, 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 you know, reformative justice or these alternatives to policing because these same the same county votes against tax hikes that fund the police while they go out and express that they are against defunding the police. Do you think that in a conservative situation like that, where you have a Trumper county, where you have a county that doesn't even maybe know what the words neoliberalism or mutual aid mean. Do you think that, that their focus on the bottom line, on taxes, do you think that that makes them susceptible to considering other forms of policing if they are more cost-effective, things that are more focused on communal care? You know, I am not really an expert in, uh, in reaching, reaching conservative folks. Right. Um, I do know that in most communities, um, my politics are much farther to the left <laughs> than the average person that I'm going to approach. Sure. And so I find that what makes the most sense to me, you know, sometimes people ask me about like how you talked about abolition to people who, you know, think are very deeply attached to the carceral state. And I always say that, you know, we start by talking about people's hearts, desires, and what they want for their community. And I think there are a lot of contexts in which we wouldn't expect people to be open to some of our ideas, where when we really start talking about what they want and what they need for their communities and what kind of policies would get them there, that they wind up being open to actual policies that are much closer to what we want and the world that we want. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised um, if there were openings there for folks that if they got into conversations with people that were divorced from some of the labeling, but just getting down to brass tacks, what's happening to you and the people around you? What do you want to have happen? That sure, there's a potential for people to realize that 
none of this is working for me. And what I want is actually something really radically different. Kelly, thank you so much for being on our show. I'm sorry that I threw in another question from you. Before you <laughs> no worries. Find out thank more. you for having yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> show, uh, show your support for Kelly Hayes, please, at patreon.com slash Kelly Hayes. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. You have a great day. All right. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. So, Chris, you do a lot of activism in, uh, here in the Chicago area and elsewhere. Have you have you had... Uh, <laughs> what the hell is I'm that? I'm sorry music? about that. Yeah, well, well, let's kill that music. What do you yes, say? Let's definitely kill that music. <laughs> so, uh, sorry about that. So have you run in the same circles with Kelly in the past? Have you run across <laughs> what the hell is going on? I don't know, actually. Uh, sorry about that. I apologize. <laughs> kill that uh, Sorry. Yeah, I'm going to kill that. Uh, so... Uh, I've, I've met her at the socialism conference, uh, basically compliment her podcast. Um, and I've seen her in different rallies. I know she was at that, uh, vigil for, uh, that, that, uh, for that, uh, Palestinian journalist that got, that got murdered. Right, right. So I saw her there, but, uh, I'm not, I mean, I've seen her, I've talked to her and she's, she's a really great person. I'm reading her book right now. Let this radicalize you. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know her or anything like that, but I've seen her around. I talked to her a little bit here and there. How is the it. socialism conference? I've never gone to it. Oh, it's um, it's pretty good actually. It's uh, it's it's I mean, you get different like like there's things about housing justice, interracial organizing, uh, and of course there's groups like the Tempest Collective and D- Democratic Social America have their own, their own little sessions. So, yeah, so it's just little stuff like that. Uh, it's it's yeah, it's just pretty good. Uh, I've I've met some really insightful people. Me personally, I like going to international stuff like the Sudan, like the Sudanese, like oppression of Sudanese people, for example. Right. Uh, I met a woman that was a a, a woman who fought. Um, was a Kurdish fighter fighting against, you know, for, for, for free Kurdistan and talking to people like that's very insightful. So with me, I go to more international stuff if possible because local stuff like like older people like Carlos Rosa and Rosa Rodriguez were there talking, doing their thing. But they're local and I've seen these people around, you know, so like I don't go to those as much. But Within the conference. So you go to the international stuff within the socialism within conference. Within the social conference. Okay. But sometimes you get some local Chicago stuff there too. Because every time I hear the word conference, and I'm not saying this about the socialism conference, but every time I hear the word conference, what I am afraid is going to happen is I'm going to get there and there's going to be a whole bunch of vendor booths. <laughs> That's the uh, first thing I think of. They're like, they're, there's some of those booths there, but they're like more socialist booths or more booths like, let's just say, Cosmonaut Magazine, which is a Marxist magazine. Right, right. So you get some leftist literature booths here and there and it's, or, or some activist groups, not even socialist officially, but some activist groups having their booths spreading their literature as well. Like, let's just say, one I met, uh, it was called Her, and they support. They fight for uh, wi- like uh, women of color being in prison and stuff like that. Yeah. And so you meet people like that. And they're not officially socialists, you know. Or like one of my friends, uh, he did a session on uh, a railroad, a union, railroad worker unions for railroads. Uh, people work on railroads, like their union. They were not all those guys are socialists, and that wasn't an official socialist session per se. But they they do try to have some union representation in that as well. I know currently uh, Haymarket Books. Uh, does a lot of those uh, does most uh, has the socialism conference in the past it was mostly uh, the recently deceased ISO organization oh, right. Right. they did it for most of the years but the last two years was Haymarket Books so so glad to know because I've always been curious about that uh, socialism conference I know I know Manufacturing Dissent since 1996, this is hell, and you are listening to the best of 2023, as determined by listeners to and the staff of This Is Hell. And if our talk with Kelly Hayes actually gave you 
hope despite the fact that this is hell show your appreciation for completely commercial free this is hell providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else giving airtime to analysis like that of kelly hayes that you won't hear anywhere else and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996 including nearly 10 years of free shows that you can find right now at thisishell.com and doing so without accepting any grants or any money of any kind from any corporation. We're so not-for-profit, we can't afford to be a not-for-profit. Show your appreciation for all of that and help us keep This Is Hell online and on air and assist us in our efforts to make every show we've ever done available for free at our website by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast, which happens every week on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can just go to this is hell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can support completely listener supported this is hell chris please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding on facebook welcome to hellhole whichever one you want to do first yeah the question from hell is what will you do after the fuel runs out what will you do after the fuel runs out me personally, I would party like it's 1973. Because <laughs> that's when the fuel ran out. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Give me one moment. Uh, yeah, so we got some answers from Facebook. Okay. And uh, uh, our buddy Jeff Dorchen wrote, Ride a horse or a one-armed Char- Charlize Theron. <laughs> Whatever is the latest fad. <laughs> okay. And of course... Uh, uh, Braden answered Jeff with Save a horse, ride a one-armed Charlize Theron <laughs> And Braden suggested uh, One of the people who nominated uh, Kelly Hayes' interview today To be played and as part of Best of 2023, so thank you Braden And then Matt Wrote, walk <laughs> There you go uh, My Polish brother Wojcia Wrote, light my farts <laughs> oh, Jesus And then This is uh, quickly declining <laughs> Anthony wrote, by then we'll be turning grandpa and grandma into biomass. All right. John wrote, depending on the fuel, I'll either molder in my grave or what's left of the matter that once composed my body will drift through a cold, dark, and ever-expanding universe. Well, that sounds all right. Pete wrote, burn soylent green. (laughs) Jeff wrote, do I get merch for giving the question? Yes, you oh. do. But you've already won. So, Jeff, quit asking for extra merch. <laughs> and, then, and then Jeff and then Bob answered Jeff with only natural fibers. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Mitchell wrote, remain dead. <laughs> so he's currently dead. Uh, As part of our demographic target group that we're trying to get to listen to the show, the dead. Uh, and then uh, Lisa wrote, Bicycle and bean burritos, same as most of the last 30 odd years. <laughs> and then she wrote, hmm, interesting. I presume this was only about personal transportation, but really that would be the least of our problems. <laughs> yes, it would be. Uh, Fabio wrote, your mom. <laughs> All right, whatever. Justin wrote, personally, I run on ethanol. When that runs out, I will literally die. And David wrote, Disco Infernos for those long, cold winter nights. <laughs> and then Serg wrote, Burn, baby, burn. All right. 
And we do have some uh, hellhole qu uh, answers as well. Let's get to those after we play Jeff oh. Dorchin's favorite moment of truth uh, for 2023. Uh, the person, again, with our uh, favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Again, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us at thisishellradio. You can post it at our Patreon page if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell or in our discord community or you can just email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner coming up jeff dorchin with the moment of truth more of your answers to this week's question from hell we'll also tell you uh the next best of 2023 interview as selected by listeners too and the staff of this is hell to be played here on the show you are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell. Chris, I know you have Jeff Dorchin's favorite moment of truth queued up and ready to go. So let's hear Jeff's take on the Hoosier State of Indiana. One, two, you know what to do that. One more time. Faceless people from Indiana. Some people suffer from an inability to recognize faces. The neurological term is prosopagnosia, or face blindness. A film producer friend of ours has it. It's polite to introduce yourself by name, even when meeting him for the 35th time, so he has no trouble knowing who he's talking to and doesn't have to pretend to recognize you to spare you embarrassment. It's been said the one face he can recognize is his wife's, and only by the part of the forehead where her eyebrows approach the bridge of her nose. I'm sure the first thing that comes to the mind of most people is the potential for the numerous pranks one could play on such a person, from something as harmless as convincing them they're in a crowd when they're actually in a room with only one or two other people, to the far more amusing deception of leading them to commit a crime against a close family member. You people are disgusting. That's what you call amusement? I'm not sure I agree. There is an odd kind of face, though, that can induce prosopagnosia in otherwise neurotypical individuals. And yethetism is being forgettable or having a forgettable face. It's the mirror image of the other thing we were just talking about, which I've since forgotten the word for. It's odd that two afflictions that are basically about the ephemerality of the human face should be able to be called mirror images of each other since each of them conjure a mirror image or vision field in which an image fails to appear. It's like talking about the mirror image of invisibility. But that's part of the mystery of mirrors. Within a mirror lies another world. And if it were indeed invisible, there almost wouldn't be anything at all to a mirror. What is a mirror but an object that reflects whatever is in front of it? And if all it does is reflect the invisible, it's unfit. But the subject of a malfunctioning or malingering mirror leads us into highly speculative territory, and we don't tolerate the highly speculative in this infotainment venue. A slight window of speculation is all we need. 
open just enough so we can reach in and pull a thin conspiracy theory from it. That's why I'm here anyway. I don't know why you're here. Probably to trick someone into killing their mother from what I've learned about you in an above paragraph. Let's let bygones be bygones, though, shall we? What's really important is the issue of these people without faces. I mean, effectively, they have no faces, at least none that I can remember. Think of the power you'd have if you were instantly forgotten. You could go in for as many free sample gelato flavors as you wanted. All sorts of crimes would be possible. You could be caught on security footage, and it would be of no help in capturing you. No witness could describe you. You couldn't be picked out of a police lineup. You could play any number of different characters in a drama, and as long as they never had to share the stage together, no one would be the wiser. The drawbacks, however, are obvious. So obvious, I won't even list them here. The question arises... How do we know that people with this attribute exist? An interesting thing about it is, although they are repeatedly anonymous at a quotidian level, they do have the ability to be recognized once spotlighted in the public eye. The difficulty for them is getting into the public eye in the first place. One theory is that the gatekeepers of the spectacle have special spectacles for picking out of the masses aniothotic candidates for power, fame, and fortune. That's how we know of three aniothotic individuals, all of them eerily from Indiana. The most immediately frightening is Mike Pence, most recently the vice president of the United States while it creaked under the ancient girth of Donald J. Dump, one of our most illegal presidents. Sure, you know who Pence is now, but before he became governor of Indiana, he had difficulty getting anyone to look twice at him and recognize the same guy. He won five re-elections to his congressional seat, not because his constituents liked how he served them, but because they were looking to replace him with a fresh face. Another erstwhile faceless Hoosier is Pete Buttigieg, the current Secretary of something, Secretary of Transportation Explosions. He's also known as Pete, Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg. Although he is known to have policy opinions, a facial feature or two, and certain ambient idiosyncrasies, Pete Buttigieg, as he's often called, retains a great deal of his forgettability even now as a household name. And nephetism can return like a five o'clock shadow if the person in question is unremarkable enough even as a fixture in the spectacle. A name the world seems to have forgotten is that of James Danforth Quayle, vice president under George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush himself was a so-called victim of anathetism, but he seems to have been cured sometime while heading the CIA. Dan Quayle, on the other hand, has had a relapse so complete many assume he died at some point early in the second millennium. And there may be some truth to that, maybe even some super truth. There's a figure from the Japanese Edo era yokai tradition called Noprabo, the faceless ghost. The legend of Noprabo was brought to the English speaking world by the journalist Lafcadio Hearn in his collection of stories titled Kwaidan, Stories and Studies of strange things, some of which were adapted by director Masaki Kobayashi in his 1964 movie Kwaidan. 
The medical literature links the two, the Noprabo and the Anyathotics. Doctors are famous for gossiping and telling tales out of school, which should be a warning to all of us to keep our ailments and infections to ourselves. The doctors speak of a belief that those with remarkably unremarkable faces are in fact possessed by the spirit of the yokai, Noprabo. One legend that has grown up around the 41st presidency is the following story of anonymous attribution still told in medical circles. Dick Cheney, at that time serving as Secretary of Defense, was walking in the White House Rose Garden one night when he saw from a distance the Vice President crouched down at the edge of a pond. Cheney listened and could swear he heard the man softly weeping. He came up behind the VP and discovered that, yes, the man was definitely emitting quiet sobs. Cheney had the perverse impulse to push the man into the Rose Garden water feature and drown him there, but then he reasoned the effort would be more usefully applied one day when he himself was vice president and whatever little crying bitch was serving as president by then was crouching by the pond and he could actually profit from the crime. Later, he discovered that the ambiguous nature of the office of vice president could be of even more use to him than murder. So Cheney said, Mr. Quayle, sir, why are you weeping beside this pond in nothing but a kimono? For indeed, Quayle was wearing a kimono and weeping into one of its wide sleeves. Surely, whatever it is, can't be so bad as all of that. But the sobbing continued, Please, Mr. Quayle, tell me why you weep so. If there's anything I can do to help you, you need only ask, and I will faithfully execute your wish. Quayle stood up, still crying quietly into his sleeve, as he turned to face Dick Cheney. He then let his arm drop, revealing a face without eyes, nose, mouth, nor any feature whatever. Just blank skin as smooth as an egg. Cheney let out a comical squeal of fright and fled for the safety of the White House. As he approached, he saw the president, George Bush the Elder, nursing an aperitif beef jerky stick in the porch light. He threw himself at the president's feet, crying out in fear, Ah! 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 Now, now, what's the matter, Mr. Secretary, said the president. Did someone hurt you? Nobody hurt me, but ah! Ah! Only scared you? It was Vice President Quayle. He was by the pond, crying, and he showed me, Oh, I cannot tell you what he showed me. Ha! Was it? Anything like this? The president asked, and on looking up, Cheney saw that Bush's face had become blank like an egg, and then the porch light went out, and Cheney had his second in what would become a series of abundant heart attacks. And so the Taoist verse, which is Chinese, not Japanese, is confirmed. Seduction comes from what you can see, but terror comes from what you cannot see. And that's the moment of truth. Good day. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, the Miami, the Ho-Chunk, the Menominee, and Sac and Fox peoples, this is Hell. Chris, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and share how listeners are responding on our Welcome to the Hell Hole Facebook group page. 
The question from hell this week is, what will you do after the fuel runs out? What will you do after the fuel runs out? And uh, Dan wrote, put a tiger in my tank. Okay. And then uh, Krimsky Crackers wrote, post no more forever. <laughs> and then Penn Donovan wrote, I'll finally have a legit reason to have to talk to the neighbors. <laughs> there you go. Penn's a past guest on our show. Woke up really early in the morning in Australia to be on the show. Hmm. And then Nick wrote, switch over to antibiotic respiration. <laughs> and uh, Dan Butler wrote, perspire relentlessly. Dan was the accordion player on our show when we just began. Oh, dope. <laughs> um, and then Jen wrote... Keep walking and biking like I've been doing. Oh, there you go. The electricity runs out. She'll be a survivor. <laughs> um, and then Aaron wrote, harness the incredible power of the moon. Makes sense. And Kwafka <laughs> wrote, this is the last one. He wrote, warm my home by setting my flatulence alight. <laughs> That's the second lighting of farts answer to the question from hell from our always very erudite listening audience. The person with our favorite answer, as always, to this week's question from hell wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can see all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it on Patreon and our Discord community. Email it at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner at the end of the show and our final installment of the best of 2023. Chris, who is our final what is the final interview we will be playing during our best of 2023 series here on this is hell we're gonna wrap up the best of 2023 by playing our august interview with gerald horn on his latest book revolting capital racism and radicalism in washington dc from 1900 to 2000. This is the seventh straight year. Listeners have nominated and then uh, voted for Gerald Horn, uh, the interview with Gerald Horn to be featured on our best of 2023. And that in $2.50 gets you a ride on the bus. This is Hell has been named a finalist at Chicago's be as Chicago's best podcast in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll. Also, your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show host, live stream and podcast host Chuck Mertz that's me has been nominated as a finalist in the same poll as best radio DJ so you can vote for us under the city life category chicagoreader.com slash best polls are open through January 14th 2024 and the winners will be announced sometime in February so go to chicagoreader.com slash best under the city life category vote for this is hell as Chicago's best podcast and vote for Chuck Mertz as best Best radio DJ. We hope to see you every Wednesday during our regularly scheduled This Is Hell office hours, our meet and greet. That's really a drink and think at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in the Westridge neighborhood, beginning around 6 p.m. every week throughout January. Thanks to uh, thanks to Chris Coolfan for producing. I am your bitter blind broke gap toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Another end of the world is possible, or not, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh. And my demon tries to knock me down 
and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.